Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Dose Nation. I am your host, Jake, and thank you for joining us. Saturday, 5 p.m. here on the East Coast. It is May 4th, 2013. Uh, we're here again with you. And, of course, with me, as always, with me every week, is James Kent, co-host and founder of Dose Nation. James, how are you today? I'm doing great, Jake. Thanks. Uh, it's fun to be back on the air. Yeah, we're uh, we're here every Saturday, so make sure that you always tune in. But let's let's uh, go right into tonight's guest, because this is a show that I've been waiting for. Tim Wallace Murphy is an international best-selling author renowned for his works, which explore the mysteries surrounding the Knights Templar, Rosslyn Chapel, Sacred Geometry, Rex Deus Bloodlines, Esoteric Knowledge, Current Events, and much more. His latest book, Genesis of a Tragedy, A Brief History of the Palestinian People, discusses the egregious human rights violations against the Palestinians, their history, and much more. Tim, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. So, um... You you were uh, a guest on Truth Transmission several times, and uh, and I really enjoyed that. And um, one of the things I want to start off with is you. Let's let, let's start off with what what is hidden wisdom? What is this hidden wisdom in the West that um, has la- lain dormant to the the consciousness of most Westerners for you know the past thousand years? It's something which is not restricted to the West. It has its origins in the Middle East. And its official name is Gnosis, sacred knowledge. And it's part of every sacred tradition worldwide. I mean, you chaps in America are sitting on one of the best repositories of of the secret wisdom known to mankind, the traditions of your Native American people. And it's one of my regrets that most Americans are blissfully unaware of this. Blissfully unaware of the Gnostic tradition or the practice of Gnosis itself? Uh, Both. Both. I think also it would be salutary for... Most people on a spiritual search to study the traditions of your native people. There is very much to be learned there. I wrote a book a few years ago in which I compared some of the recorded sayings of Native Americans of the 19th century and contrasted them with the insights gained by medieval Christian mystics in Europe. And you could change the names underneath them because they were saying precisely the same thing. Now, actually, since you've mentioned that, um, why don't why don't why don't we extrapolate on that very briefly? You said that the native, you know, Native Americans in the 19th century, medieval Christian monks, basically saying the same thing, essentially saying the same thing. Is that found other places? Is it? I mean, do these? Oh yes, it's a worldwide phenomenon. So yeah, which 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 would be an indicate which would indicate at least to me that there is a body of gnosis to be discovered. So oh, yes. let's let's chat a little bit about what what that body of gnosis is, um, and the process of attaining spiritual gnosis, for lack of a better word. Uh, it's divinely inspired wisdom. It's the same worldwide. It's phrased differently in different cultures, but it comes to the same thing. It teaches us how to live in a troubled world, and it's just as valid today in the 21st century with all its technological advance as it was two or 3,000 years ago. 
And it, in most Eastern countries, it was a, quite an open phenomenon. It was known, treasured, and revered. And the people who attained it were venerated to a considerable degree. It was only in Europe where you had the overriding repression of the Catholic Church and its later Protestant spin-offs that it became derided because it was seen as a competition. Uh, the Church brooked no rivals. They were the sole authority over everything. And they declared Gnosticism as a heresy. Well, so now, now why, was, why was Gnosticism considered a heresy? Can you just uh, give, give us a pocket uh, definition of why? What, what's considered heretical about Gnosticism? Uh, first of all, you need to understand that the church, as it originally emerged and as, as it still is today, is not in the business of purveying spirituality. It's a political machine which uses religion as a means of control. And its basic statement was that outside the church there is no salvation. And it defined as heresy any distortion of divinely revealed truth by any believer or unbeliever. And of course, divinely revealed truth was what the self-appointed custodians of divinely revealed truth, namely the church, said it was. They wanted total control over people. The last thing they wanted were people having access to spiritual knowledge that they could not control. Now, let me ask you something, um, because one of the uh, church's greatest um, founders, Constantine, uh, the myth is that, or the, the legend is that he had uh, some sort of Gnostic vision where Christ or God appeared to him and told him that he had to uh, wage a holy war. Now, Oh, what, what a lot of nonsense. What a lot. <laughs> Let's put you right. Let's muddy the waters of this debate with a few facts, shall we? Okay, go ahead. Sounds good. There was a civil war going on, political control of Rome. And Constantine won it at a battle pretty late on in, in the proceedings. And the night before the battle, he had a vision and he saw the Christian sign in the clouds, and underneath it the legend, In hoc signo vinces, in this sign you will conquer. So he had the sign painted on his soldiers' shields the night before the battle, the Battle of the Milbian Bridge, and he won. And this British-born Roman became the emperor of the entire Roman Empire of that time, which ranged from the British Isles in the west to the borders of Persia in the east. So, in 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 what I'm trying to get at is in in church gospel or church in the in the way the church parses information. How are we supposed to view Constantine's vision? Is it divine wisdom? Uh, the church would say it was divine intervention. Uh, but the thing to remember is there is no evidence whatsoever that Constantine ever became a Christian. He was mm. a follower of a Mithraic cult called Sol Invictus, and he worships the sun. And he was very, very conscious of the fact that the Christian communities in Rome, or the, those he knew, were very strictly law-abiding citizens. And he wanted to use these people as a form of social cement to heal the wounds of the recent civil war. And then when he gave them freedom... 
He found to his intense horror they were squabbling like cats and dogs over the true nature of Jesus. So he fixed this by arranging the first church council, that of Nicaea. Right. And it was the first rigged council in history. Hmm. The people who attended it were handpicked. Their expenses were paid. Uh, if they voted the right way, they got handsomely rewarded. If they voted the wrong way, they were sent into exile and their property was confiscated. The whole thing was a fix-up. And it lumbered us with the idea that Jesus was God and the church was a supreme authority. Under biblical Judaism, the high priest at the temple of the Jerusalem was the people's representative before God, pleading for forgiveness and for mercy. Under After Constantine, the Pope in Rome became God's representative before the people, and what he said goes. A total reversal. And you've got right. the basis of an authoritarian and repressive state. So, um, Gnosticism is a way of going around the teachings of the church and finding a direct link to uh, the word of God, for, for lack of a better term. The, the church doesn't want people practicing Gnosticism because it removes their authority and it undermines their ability to, to, to make political action. So can you just name a handful of Gnostic groups that have been, been wiped out over the centuries uh, who, who have fallen under the wrath of the Catholic Church? The list is almost endless. Well, I know, but just for our listeners who may be not as familiar with history as the rest of us, can you just like rattle off a few? Because <laughs> I know you've written about this extensively in, in your title. Uh, the first person to be burned at the stake for heresy was a Gnostic called Priscillian of Avila, and that happened within 50 years of the Council of Nicaea. The major groups, which most people will have heard of, would have been the Cathars, the Manichaeans, the Knights Templar, the Hussites, and the list goes on. And when the Freemasons were founded back in the 17th century, they were put on the condemned list too. Uh, it was a penal offense to be a Freemason in the Papal States. You could lose your head for it. You could lose your head for a lot of things in the Papal States. <laughs> let's, let's skip sideways here yeah. for a second and talk about the origins of Freemasonry and uh, – I'm a little confused about the origins of Freemasonry because, in, in, in some senses, I've been told that it was a uh, a secret society to organize within, you know, outside of the Catholic Church to spread well, ideas of Gnosticism. And others have told me that it was sort of a, a like a work guild, a laborers' union that became sort of uh, infiltrated by by Gnostic. Let's go people. back to stages so that you can understand. Sure, go ahead. Within the repressive regime of the church, living under their political sway, were a large group of people who claimed descent from the high priesthood of the temple in, in Jerusalem in biblical times. Descendants of the Mamadot, the 24 high priestly families. And when Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome, these families scattered throughout Europe and the Middle East. They knew bad times were coming. They continued their marital customs of only marrying within that same type family group. 
and outwardly they would practice whatever was the prevailing religion of the time, but secretly they would hand down the secret teachings which they would claim are the true teachings of Jesus, amongst other things. So this family um, There were 20 was, families to start with. They're okay, not. 20 families to start with, and they claim to have the true secret teachings of Jesus, which they have protected and passed down within their family bloodline. That You got it. For, um, let's say... A little over 2,000 years. 2,000 years. Yeah. But Um, the Freemasons as a group, they're not really a secret society, and they weren't a secret society 300 years ago. They were... um, Again, you're skipping forward too far. I'm I'm sorry. Continue. The 24 families, their first public creation were the Knights Templar. Uh, who were accused of heresy after two, two hundred odd years of very profitable existence, handed over to the Inquisition and tortured for some six years before the order was finally uh, abolished by the Pope. The same families who founded that, the, the Rex Deus group, went on many years later, many centuries later, to found Freemasonry. But in the meantime, the Reformation had happened, and the Church had lost its total control over Europe. Right. And you had the Protestant states in the north and the Catholic states in the south, as a sort of rough guide. And under the slightly eased circumstances of the Reformation, the Rex Deus families, who had been the patrons of the Craft Masons, which was a trade guild, as you rightly said, mm-hmm started to change the nature of the guilds and turn them into what we would now call speculative Freemasonry. So the same teaching, the same basic spiritual teaching, went from the Knights Templar through the Rex Deus families and on into Freemasonry. There's no direct link. It's just the same family foundation and the same principles. And today, the worldwide fraternity of Freemasonry is not a secret society. It's a society with secrets. And those secrets are spiritual teachings which help make good men better. That's their official line, and it's actually a simple statement of truth. And uh, what is what is the state of Freemasonry today? Are, are lodges uh, full, or are they sort of emptying out as... What, they, how, they, how is it going at, at the moment? They, they went through a period of decline for about 15 or 20 years uh, and became almost fancy-dressed gentlemen's dining clubs. Right. But then, about 10 or 15 years ago, there was an in, intake of younger people who were thirsty for spiritual knowledge, and this is particularly happening very, very strongly in the northeast corner of the United States and elsewhere in your country. And they were thirsty for spiritual knowledge, and the whole craft has been revitalized and brought back to what it was originally there to teach, which is teaching spirituality. And they do that through storytelling, allegory, ritual, and by example. And it's beginning to thrive mightily, I'm happy to say. And Freemasonry doesn't consider itself a religious organization in the in the classical sense. It's more of a public service organization. Uh, 
No, public service is part and parcel of the fruits of spiritual insight. A very great spiritual teacher, Shaluluddin Rumi, wrote about 800 years ago, there can be no enlightenment until you recognize the divine signature in every aspect of God's creation, and by serving that, you serve God. Love and compassion, brotherly love and compassion, are simple emotions. They're empty unless they translate into action. And the Worldwide Brotherhood of Freemasonry does phenomenal charitable work and keeps remarkably quiet about it. They fund hospitals, medical research programs, schools, local... Well, okay, now, now here's where the conspiracy theorists would jump in and say they remain remarkably quiet about it because they don't want anybody to know how many fingers they have in different pies all over the world. Um, how would you respond to that? Uh, Just, well... According to the conspiracy theorists, there is a worldwide conspiracy between the Jews and the Freemasons to monopolize <laughs> the world. Now, I'm part Jewish, I'm a Freemason, and I haven't been appointed Pope at the last conclave. Uh, there are very few Freemasons heading newly emerging states in the, in the developing world. But in the Western world, a very large percentage of people of all political persuasions are members of the craft. But the craft does not take political action as a body. Its individuals are free to do as they choose. I see. So there is no uh, hierarchical Freemasonry agenda that has some sort of New World Order aim or goals attached to it. People talk about the New World Order, and in economic terms, they may have a point. Uh, they also talk about the Illuminati, and much has been written about them, and I've never seen the slightest bit of proof that they existed after their supposed foundation 200-odd years ago. Uh, conspiracy theorists will cook up a conspiracy about anything they don't understand or aren't bothered to investigate. I have little time for them. Right, I understand that. I just know that uh, somebody listening to this may, uh, may want to, to question you on that. Another uh, thread I wanted to go down that I'm not sure that you could you could uh, throw any wisdom on is within the psychedelic community there is a lot of alternative history about how the Catholic Church suppressed the use of magic mushrooms or visionary mushrooms or visionary brews like the um, the Kikion that was used at Eleusis for the Grand Mysteries. Do, does your research into these these um, occult groups, for lack of a better term, uncover any of that, or is that sort of reading too much into the history that you've seen? Uh, no, there's a, an element of truth in it. Okay, and how much of an element? Can you can you give me any details? There's, there's, or? there's two aspects of it. Okay. First of all, in many native shamanistic cultures to this day, uh, the use of mood-altering chemicals in controlled dosages is part of their ritual. Uh, that's been the case since time began. Sure, but I'm, I'm the talking church, more about yeah, yeah, the Western tradition in the church yeah. and how they would react to the something. Ch the church repressed all rival religions, full stop. All rival spiritual practices, full stop. It brought no opposition. And if you didn't fall into line, you were invited to the next church barbecue and you were the menu. 
Sure, but I'm, I'm guessing what I'm what I'm asking is if there are um, groups of families and secret sects that are holding the uh, secrets of the mysteries, for lack of a better word, do the does that contain um, you know the secret of the use of the magic mushrooms or the uh, not, no, not, not not in the families I've been investigating. Right, so not within the, the, the history of Freemason and the Knights Templar, and even like say the Cathars and the Manichaeans. You wouldn't go <laughs> so far as to say that any of these groups were using magic mushrooms that, or something similar. There is no evidence whatsoever to support that idea. Well, I would I, I could find somebody who would argue with that you on that, but I, I'm not going to take up that argument because I, I'm not really that's not my area of particular research, yeah, so well, I couldn't I couldn't argue a solid case. But well, um, I've I, I've certainly read many books that would want to make that case. Yes, they make it on nil evidence, on speculation, uh, and fantasy. I'm one very unpopular in certain quarters because I want to know where the proof is. Doesn't matter whether it's this subject or another. I like sources. I like documentation. I want archaeological artifacts to support uh, a line of investigation. If they're not there, I don't knock it totally. I say it may have happened. Right. You can't I know what we don't know. But I haven't seen any evidence of it. Sure. Right. Okay. Well, I suppose that wraps that up. So, so let's. I, I want to kind of move a little bit from the West to more of the Eastern world, and this is one of the things that you and I had, uh, had spoken about, Tim, privately. Was what Islam did for us? Because we've talked about Christianity, we've talked about, um, you know, Western gnosis. But as all, you know, as the Dark Ages were coming in Europe, as the Carlaginians were rising in the West, as the Orthodox churches were beginning to form, and, and you know, the councils were going on, and so on and so forth, and Europe was in kind of this, um, you know, uh, at least the Western, at least Western Europe was in a state of disarray. In the in the Middle East, Islam was thriving, and the they were making intellectual um, leaps and bounds. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what 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 Islam did for us uh, as a culture, as a um, and what advances? were made by them that directly benefited uh, the rest of the world during that period? Okay, well, let's go back a bit to the time of Charlemagne. Uh, Charlemagne had to be helped to be able to sign his own name. He was almost totally illiterate. Church uh, made sure that nobody got any education whatsoever, apart from the members of the church themselves, the priesthood. And at the time of Charlemagne, Europe was illiterate, Emperors were illiterate, so were kings and nobles. But there was one. And what time period was this? You're looking at the seventh century. Okay, thank you. At about a hundred years later, or no, you're looking at the eighth century. Uh, at that time, the Moors had invaded Spain and brought Islam with it. And there are two big differences between Christianity and Islam. First of all, Christianity, the few scholars they were, studied theology, trying to describe the mind of God, which is dismissed by uh, Muslims as insanity. Sure. (laughs) If you want to know the work of God, the Muslim attitude was study God's work in nature. So in total contrast to the Christian world, the Muslim world started seizing on Study, investigation, natural sciences, philosophy, 
uh, medicine. And and uh, the, the largest library in the world was in Baghdad. The second largest library in the world was in the Spanish city of Cordoba. In Cordoba, that particular, right, particular right. time, you had Christian schools, Muslim schools, and Jewish schools all side by side because the people of the book were allowed religious freedom and were encouraged again into education. They published 20,000 books a year. They had their own university, which later became a role model for first the University of Paris and later Oxford and Cambridge. And they were light years ahead of us in knowledge and understanding. And it was only in the 12th century that some of this knowledge started to percolate through into Europe, which again was beginning to change. And what Islam did for us, it gave us the foundations of modern science. It gave us the foundations of modern medicine. It gave us r rules, law and order and means of enforcing them that were not excessively repressive. It gave us a sense of values, which basic Christianity did not pre preach or practice. It laid the foundations for the modern way of life we enjoy in Europe and you enjoy in the United States today. And yet very few people are aware of this. And we have treated the world of Islam, frankly, in a barbaric manner from the time of the Crusades up to the present day. And we're still doing it. So, so at what point in time did, did, did Islam cease to, to fulfill that role? Um, well, I have a, I it, wanted to oh, follow okay, you know what? That, go, that line right there ahead. with a, with a quick question. When the, when Islam came to the West originally, like as you're saying, at the end of the Dark Ages, the 12th century, um, it, that's about the time when you say natural sciences, uh, the birth of alchemy is what I'm, is what I'm trying to get to. The people who we consider to be the first alchemists, they were heavily influenced by Islam, but they were also very, uh, very much Christians, as they were all, I mean, like you said, if they were educated, they had to be monks, they had to be within the religious institution. Within alchemy, there's a lot of encoded symbology. How much of that is trying to hide uh, these Islamic ideals that had come over from the East within the writings that were happening within, like, say, the, you know, the bosom of the church itself? Well, first of all, the word alchemy is Islamic. Secondly, uh, Alchemy started to be recorded in Europe, Christian Europe, about the 11th, 12th century. Mm -hmm. It had been practiced in Islam for many years since, except it went under different names. Alchemy is not a search for some magical substance that is going to translate, transmute lead into gold. It's got nothing to do with that at all. It took on that mask, that camouflage, when it came into Europe. It's a spiritual pathway of gnosis. And its job is to translate the base metal of human existence into the pure gold of spiritual enlightenment. Well, so this is, this is what I wanted to get at, is that when, when alchemists, the early Western European alchemists, were trying to write about these, they had to encode everything that they were talking about in in some sort of symbology, a hidden symbology. Now we we know now in retrospect why they were doing that and what they were talking about. But there is still, I think, a huge fascination among people that there is something that the alchemists knew that we don't. What what would you say to that? There's like something a secret hidden 
wisdom in alchemy that is not really understood by by modern people and be beyond gnosis no it's um, not it's not beyond gnosis it is a pure form of gnosis but that's i mean but so there's nothing beyond the gnostic tradition in alchemy no, that's that's hidden in it's, there it's just a specific and well documented path to spiritual enlightenment just as the slightly later grail sagas fulfilled exactly the same function. I remember a wonderful TV series some years ago called The Power of Myth with Joseph Campbell being... Oh, yes, absolutely. Great, great, great show. Uh, and Bill Moyers posed the question to Campbell, what is the Holy Grail? And Campbell answered with another question. He said, well, why should any medieval knight search, set out and search for a relic, however holy, when if he wanted a miracle, all he had to do was go to church and partake directly of the body and blood of Jesus. He said, no, it was a coded guide to initiation, spiritual enlightenment. And to back up his argument, he quoted a passage from the Gospel of Thomas, where Jesus is reported as saying, he who drinks from my mouth, I shall become him and he shall become me. Now think about that. Think about the deep meaning behind it. You see, the Rex Ayers families did not believe that Jesus died to save us from sin. They thought he came to reveal, not to redeem. And he was part of a, a sacred line of teaching. His teacher was John the Baptist. His prized pupil was John the Divine. And this is why then both the Knights Templar and the Freemasons of today revere the two saints John, because they're celebrating a process not a person. And it's a process of handing down spiritual teaching, which they are still in the business of doing. So I want to, I want to jump forward a couple centuries here. Um, there's a, a backlash among modern spiritualists against science for being overly reductionist. And um, one of my, biggest complaints or problems with that line of reasoning is that science is basically the end result of thousands of years of spiritual tradition. Um, you, you follow the spiritual tradition of Islam and the alchemists uh, through the Catholic Church and into the industrial world, you see that there's a direct line from, from yeah. alchemy to modern science. It goes, it goes way back to ancient Greece, where there was no differentiation made between philosophy, science, and spirituality. They were all aspects of the same search. Can you give me a little bit of your perspective on, on how you see the split between science and religion in the modern world and what kind of intellectual battle is being fought right now, today? Well, I think the, the lunacy of the intellectual battle is epitomized by your arguments in the States between the creationists and the evolutionists. Right. That shows the madness of the whole thing. Uh, people believe something, so they will reject or fail to examine hard evidence. There is no differentiation between the two. More and more scientists are becoming spiritual, and more and more people following spiritual paths are becoming scientists. There's a, a re-merging. There was a split shortly after the death of Newton, who was a deeply spiritual man, and that's only just beginning to heal now. It's not a battle. It's not a competition. 
It's a search for meaning. And both sides eventually will coalesce. But it may not happen in my lifetime, but I am 83. <laughs> 83? Wow, I didn't know that. I, I thought you were a lot younger than that, actually, Tim. When I, I thought you were only about 70. Yeah. Well, now that we're on the dis on the discussion of intellectual madness, um, let's talk a little bit about the Palestinian people and uh, your most recent book, uh, Jake. I've I've lost the title. What is um, it? It's Genesis of a Tragedy. Uh, Genesis of a Tragedy. Yeah, right. a, a brief history of the Palestinian people. Um, well, first, let me ask what 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 compelled you to write this book, Tim? Um, after so many years of writing, um, uh, you know, books that really dealt with, you know, things like Freemasonry and the Knights Templar. What, 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 what made you take up this, this cause, so to speak? Well, two reasons. First of all, you can't write about spirituality and the values enshrined in it of brotherhood, that we're, the fact that we're all children of the same God, without extending that and saying, how does that apply today? And secondly, I was outraged. My mother was Jewish, and when the State of Israel was founded, I, follow, I swallowed the mythology they created about the creation of Israel and its early history, hook, line, and sinker. And how old, how old were you when the, the Zionist movement finally uh, got Israel? And I was uh, 1948. I was born in 1930. I was about 18 or 19. Okay, so you were you were young enough to to see that as an idealistic achievement yep. of sorts. Of sorts, and it wasn't actually until the Madrid Conference in the early 80s that we were exposed to articulate, intelligent Palestinian people speaking as honored and respected guests at an international conference. That I began to think, well, hang on, this doesn't fit. And I then started to investigate. Now, I'll give the Zionist government of Israel brownie points for one thing. They are very good about releasing their documentation. Hmm. And all the atrocities I list that are committed against the Palestinian people, or the vast majority of them, are sourced from Israeli government sources, from Haganah archives, from Israeli politicians' diaries. They were proud of what they did, and they recorded it. But they had a superbly efficient uh, PR machine, which they utilized ruthlessly. And they sold the world a pup. They've successfully blamed the victims of their assaults and genocide for any problems that arise. And I just got furious with it. You see, as a Jew, I know a little bit about my Jewish history. And for the best part of 800 years, the Jewish people survived in the world of Islam as respected members of the community. They attained positions of considerable influence. And something like 80% of the Jewish people in the world lived under the benevolent rule of Islam through choice. In Christian Europe, they got a pretty raw deal. Right. In the, in the Holocaust. And now we have the obscene situation where the grandchildren of the concentration camp inmates are now the guards to the most brutal concentration camp in modern history, namely the Gaza Strip. The once persecuted people are now the persecutors. 
And they're still selling us this line of bullshit. And in America, as opposed to Europe, we do hear a little of the other side in Europe, but in America you don't hear anything. You have congressional committees studying aspects of the Palestinian-Israeli situation who've never had an Arab address them. You have right. a very Paul, that's, we, have a, we have a very delicate relationship with Israel that would be uh, put under stress if we had members of the... Uh, <laughs> You know, the Palestinian organization uh, talking to members of Congress. That would cause a lot of stress in Israel, I think. How can you reach a solution or broker a solution to a two-sided conflict if you only ever hear one side of it? No, I, I agree with you. That's a, it's, it's not the best way to go about dealing with the diplomacy in that area. And the, um, but, the reasons are very simple. A very powerful, the most powerful political lobby in the world is AIPAC. The American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, they own your political system. They fund members from both sides in every election. So people do as they're bloody told. The American so this government is going has, back to the conspiracy of the Israelis ru ruling the world. No. You're, get, you're getting back to that now. This is not a conspiracy. It's <laughs> a there was a superb book written by a couple of American academics about APAC, which is well worth reading. And if you start probing, you're just using the internet, probing valid sources, if you start accessing people of intelligence like Noam Chomsky, you'll start to hear a different side of the story. And you will realize that when it comes to foreign policy in the Middle East, the American government does what it is told by the Israeli government. It's as simple and brutal as that. And why is the, the, the influence so strong there? Is it, is it purely a money thing? Is it a democracy thing? Or does it go back to this whole, uh, you know, I keep hearing this line about, uh, the Temple Mount and who owns the Temple Mount and, you know, the control of the Temple Mount during the Second Coming. And there's this, all of this, 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 this myth, political mythology around this one piece of real estate there. In Jerusalem, uh, how much of that is the actual truth, and how much of it is sort of whipped up for religious purposes? Well, the can, you, can, you, can you pull that apart? The Temple Mount is sacred to both Muslims and Jews, and as such, it's, it's going to be a bone of contention until a true and lasting peace is achieved in Israel, which inevitably will have to happen. But I can assure you of two things. It won't be a peace brokered by the United States. It will not happen in my lifetime. And it will come about through international pressure. And it won't be a two-state solution either. Thanks to ongoing Israeli policy, they're following through on a policy they devised in 1967, a policy of increasing annexation of the West Bank. A two-state solution is not viable. The only ultimate answer is a one-state solution with equal political rights for both Arab and Jews. And even after that is achieved, it will take 30 or 40 years for the pain, the distrust, and the hatred to die down. That's the brutal facts. Another Middle East war, if Israel attacks Iran, for example, could alter the whole timescale, but... At the moment, the facts on the ground are not hopeful. They're extremely bleak.
Right. And I want to, I kind of want to get back to the idea of power and influence, um, especially in, in politics, uh, concerning uh, Israel's agenda seems to be to continue building settlements and colonizing into these disputed areas. Uh, yes, that, and, that is their agenda. And is it, is it just really when you break the whole thing down, is it just a real estate beef? No, it's also an expulsion beef. Don't well, it's a, it's it's a it's a, a eugenics project, or a, they're trying yeah. to you know clear out the, uh, other people that besides the Israelites. Yeah, you got it. It's uh, what, what we would now call ethnic cleansing. Sure, I mean, and that's some the people who the same policy they adopted in 1948. And so, why is why are U.S. politicians so on board with that? Agenda, if it is so openly against everything that the United States basically stands for. I mean, what's what's, 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 the, what's United, the secret? What's the secret twist there? I mean, who do people understand what's going on? No, they don't, and they're deliberately kept in ignorance. Both so people in the U.S. government are deliberately kept in ignorance, so they don't they're, realize they're, exactly they're, how bad it is, or people yes, are just they are fed one line and have never been fed anything else. So that's all they know. Secondly, they're all funded by APAC in their election campaigns, so they do not step out of line or the funding dries up. And that has happened on a few occasions. So now, they, now let's let me just uh, well, let me unpack one more thing is what is the motivation of Israel for doing this? I mean, I understand that there's there's of course the the, the Zionist uh, Zionists claim that they need to re reclaim the Holy Land, but they've basically reclaimed the Holy Land. Why? Why do they need to keep pushing it? What, what do you think is their their agenda there? Their agenda has been the same since day one. It's to take take back the entire country. Uh, that is quite clear once you start studying the documentation. And furthermore, they're utterly ruthless. Human rights and democracy only counts for Israelis. It doesn't apply to the Arab peoples, the Palestinian peoples. And as long as they have America in their pocket funding them, they think they are above the law. And if you study the record of United Nations uh, resolutions questioning or criticizing Israel and see what happens to them, any that look at all possibly effective, have been vetoed by the United States. They think they can get away with everything. And as long as they have United States backing, they will. There was another state that used to behave the same way. That was the Republic of South Africa in the apartheid days. Mm, yeah. uh, they did the same thing. But when it became politically inexpedient for America to support them anymore and America pulled the financial plug against a background of international sanctions which had been going on for years, that government fell. It reached a deal and it got out. And to its, in its eternal credit, it did so peacefully. And that is due to people both on the apartheid side and people from the Af African National Congress. Mandela and Tutu are the nearest thing to saints I've seen in my lifetime. 
Well, Same that result- thing could happen in Israel. Well, the, 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 the South African conflict wasn't really wrapped up with religion quite the way that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is. I, 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 I believe that there's quite a few people in um, the evangelical community who support Israel specifically because there's some passage of the, passages of the Bible that interpreted, say, that the second coming of Jesus cannot happen until the Jews regain control of the Temple Mount. Is that, are yes, you familiar with this argument? Yes, there, there are people who believe that. Uh, now, is that just a is that just a is that just a load of hogwash that's used as a, a religious carrot to get Christians on board with the, the Zionist movement, or are there people who really do fundamentally believe that this has to happen right now? Well, there are there are people in evangelical Christianity in America who believe that sort of horseshit. Well, I, I realize that, but <laughs> is this simple. is this a trick that's being played on them, or well, is this something? It's just, that, it's just something that the Zionist lobby can use. Right, it's it's a it's a convenient carrot for them. Yeah, yeah. it's a, a convenient little byplay. Remember, it's only three or four years ago, or maybe a little more, that a bunch of evangelical American Christians were arrested in Israel for trying to foment uh, Armageddon. Mm, right. I mean, this this is how crazy some people can be. Uh, trying to breed a white calf and uh, yeah. bring about the, the 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 signs of the apocalypse. Yeah. Uh, the apocalypse will or won't happen according to God's will. Now, so all of this, all of that I see is, is just kind of, you know, in, insanity. It seems like a lot of, uh, where, where you get, you get religion, which is basically a search for, for spirituality. And then you have this other religion that's this, this, this form of political control of the masses that you say. But eventually it just becomes religion used as political control of the masses eventually turns into a kind of insanity. Yes, it does. Because they believe their own bullshit. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And they're very sincere about it. I mean, right. even the people in power forget that the line is essentially bullshit and they just yeah. li- they just use it and live well, because they, it's they can use it to their own political advantage. I mean, the influence of the religious right uh, in American presidential elections was quite considerable until the first election of Obama, and it could easily revive again. It's part and parcel of one of the facts of life. I mean, these people are capable of believing three crazy contradictory things before breakfast. (laughs) I mean, there was a lovely story a couple of years ago about a woman was being driven by her husband to some state fair, and she saw a gentleman in long white robes and open-toed Jesus boots and long hair walking along the road with apparently angels floating above him uh, and vanishing out of sight. And she said, it's the rapture. And hmm. she had the sunroof open and she stood up and the wind, screen, the wind stream blew her out of the car under the wheels of the car behind her. That's the sort of nonsense that's going on. Hmm. So yeah, it's not only um, it's not only ignorant; it can be dangerous. Dangerous. Well, it is. Dangerous. <laughs> yeah. So since since we're talking about um, the the American evangelical right, um, would you quickly touch upon what what your thoughts are on their influence within American politics? Because their influence, I mean, in American politics, even 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 since the election of Obama, um, is quite considerable. 
your knowledge of that would be infinitely more than mine. I'm, I'm not okay with it. I, I don't waste time studying it too much. These okay. People, well, you live in you live in France. Yeah. There's there's um what what's the what what are the what's the political tension there right now between um, France and the, the Muslim population there? I know that there's there was the hijab rule that was passed a couple of years ago, and there was a big backlash against that. But what what are day to day tensions like there really like? Uh, by and large, in most parts of France, not much. But because of the disproportionate unemployment amongst the Muslim population, it doesn't start, take much to start a riot. Uh, I see. It, right. we, we haven't had one for four or five years, but we have had a couple of uh, Muslim jihadist-type killings, uh, which were very unpleasant. But by and large, most of the time you wouldn't notice most so French let's talk. Oh, yeah. So I wanted they, to move. Go ahead. Most French people are like people everywhere. They want to know can they eat tomorrow? They've still got a job. Have they got a roof over their head? Now, let's talk about the um, when we're talking about religious insanity and, and religion used as a tool of political control. The A lot of people had, uh, you know, high hopes for the Arab Spring, which basically was, like you said, a, a lot of unemployed men. <laughs> rioting because they wanted to change things. But you also have this idea of the Muslim Brotherhood should be in control, or we need a state that's run by Sharia law. Can, can you talk a little bit about where Islam has, has sort of lost its way in terms of the way it deals with its internal politics and the rest of the world? Well, first, uh, first, first of all, Islam, in that sense, is no different from any other religion. It has its lunatic fringe. It has its fundamentalists harking back to some mythical time that never existed in the past where everything was perfect and according to God's will. <coughs> Just like your fundamentalists in the deep south. The problem is that the biggest oil producer in the world is Saudi Arabia. And the Saudi government are members of a very strict ultra-strict sect called the Wahhabi. Sure. The Wahhabis are well-known here in the U.S. Right. Well, every time you pump gas into your car, you're pumping money into the Saudi Arabian coffers. And because the Saudi Arabian royal family are very hedonistic, they enjoy life, they like to solve their consciences spiritually. So they divert a very considerable proportion of their income to setting up Wahhabi madrasas throughout the Muslim world. So now the tail is beginning to wag the dog. The fundamentalists are taking over, and that is damnably dangerous in any religious creed or political ideology. So you're not just you're not just blaming the downfall of of Islamic culture on say that the petrochemical industry. You're also talking about the degenerate nature of the Saudi royal family. I mean, you're pointing so, the finger. I'm talking about human nature generally. Uh, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's an old old axiom, which is very true. Power is money. So there's that aspect of it. But the disparity when European culture started to overtake Islamic culture, came about because at that particular time, Islam was being attacked on both sides. It was facing 
Europe in the West who were attacking it and it was also being invaded by the Mongols from the East. And it was from that point that it started to go downhill. The last high point of Islamic society was probably Suleiman the Great, who was one of the Ottoman em- early Ottoman Empire emperors of Turkey. And after that, it's gone to hell in a handcart. But so you can, you can draw a parallel between the plight of the Islamic peoples and the plight of maybe the Hebrew people, where the Hebrew people, they started a Zionist movement where they wanted to reclaim uh, a piece of land where they could live by God's law. In, in uh, fringe Islam now, they, they want to create a Sharia state somewhere. Yeah. Is, isn't that exactly the same as what, what happened with, with Israel? It's more or less the same. But don't forget that Zionism started off not as a religious movement, but as a secular one. And it was based on two false premises. First, that all Jews in Europe could trace their origins back to the Holy Land. Very few, in fact, can. Only Sephardic Jews can. The Ashkenazi were converted to Judaism a couple of centuries after the Jews were thrown out of the Holy Land. So they've got no legitimate line back, if, if in fact that claim is legitimate. And secondly, it was based on the idea that it was a, an empty land, uh, a land empty of people for people who had no land. Hmm. And some rabbis in Vienna in the late 19th century sent a deputation to it, to what was then Palestine, and they sent back a telegram. The bride is beautiful, but she is married to another man. Hmm. In other words, the place was full of people. It wasn't empty of people. And right from the very beginning, the planning began of how to get rid of the existing people. And that plan is still in operation today and it's still being implemented. So, and it's, it's still tinged with insanity. You can go ahead, Jake. Okay with it up to, the, up to this point, but I think that time is coming. Well, well, unfortunately, we're actually coming to the end of our program tonight. So, um, Tim, could you tell us where we could find um, your books um, and you know, where people can purchase them? Yeah, the best place for your listeners would be to go to Amazon.com, go to my author's page. All the books are listed there. The Palestinian book is a a Kindle book. You don't have to buy a Kindle reader. You can download one for free for either PC or Mac from the Amazon site. And we'll have links up to those pages uh, on our website when this podcast is live. Okay, well... Thank you very much indeed. It's been fun talking to you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's been a great interview. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Tim. And um, I also want to make a few announcements for Dose Nation listeners. Remember, you can uh, like us on Facebook uh, at facebook.com forward slash Dose Nation. That's the best way for you to get all of our content, all of our information, any any kind of updates. um, (coughs) All of that stuff can be found there. You can find us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash dose nation uh things are syndicated there you can find information there as well uh, all the books that we talk about here on the program you can find on amazon you can also find them on our website at www.dosenation.com 
And, uh, you know, please uh, check out the podcast, subscribe to our RSS feed, like the Facebook page. Any support that we get is appreciated, and it really helps. And if uh, there's anything I've missed, James? No, I think that's good for this week. Yeah, I think... That no, that... Tell a friend. Yes, that's tell a friend. Good way to good way to grow the audience and make sure more people are listening. So, Incidentally, one question. Do you archive your radio shows so they can be accessed later? Yes, we yes, do. Yes, we do. We have an archive on iTunes and yes. our, on our RSS feed. Thank you. So, uh, Tim, just stay with us until we end the program tonight. So um, thank you all for joining us. Uh, I'm your host, Jake Kettle, and, of course, with me, as always, uh, is uh, co-host and founder of of, uh, the Dose Nation website, James Kent. Thanks, uh, everybody. Have a good week. Yeah, thanks for joining us, everybody, and we'll see you all next week at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you then. Have a good night, everybody. 